सहनावतु सहनावभुनक्तु सहावीर्यम करवावाहि तेजस्वीनावतीतमास्तु माविद्विशावाहि Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today, we're going to talk about the subject of deserving and desiring and their relationship, a vast topic in the Vedic worldview, and one which, at the outset, by its title, may make some people feel a little uncomfortable, even to hear the name deserving. After all, doesn't everyone deserve the best uh, doesn't everyone have maximum deserving in the context of the vedic worldview each of us has absolute deserving power our capacity to achieve that which we wish to experience is inherent in one of the very fundamental ideas of the vedic worldview and that is essentially that desire is not sourced or authored by the individual. Let me explain that a little. In the Vedic worldview, we have an understanding that there is only one indivisible whole conscious field. That one indivisible whole conscious field bifurcates, which means it splits. The one becomes many. It retains a sense of its oneness and goes into its manyness, its diversity, its multiplicity, in aid of the experience of remembrance of its oneness. How odd. Why would it do that? This is all about the desire to experience love. You see, love cannot be experienced in just pure oneness. Love can be experienced in the next level, which is the next level more relative, which is unity. Let's make the distinction between unity and oneness. Unity is the coming together of at least two things. We'll go with two for the moment, although we won't rule out multiple things. The coming together of two things with such great affinity that we can say they have unified. But unity itself is not quite one. You see, one is just one. There are no two. In order for there to be a flow of love, there has to be at least two. And so there is a level of unity, which I call artful unity, in which one is playing on the cusp of absolute oneness, but is experiencing the unification of two. That experience of love, that is recognition or recognition of oneness. We see it in each other when we realize with some degree of honesty and integrity what it is we're actually loving about anybody else. We love about them that to which we can relate. I love this movie. Oh, you love that movie too? Wow, that's a unity point. I love this kind of toast. 
gluten-free, of course. You love it, I love it too. Gosh, that's fantastic. We're getting along. This is going very well. Um, and then we start talking about politics or whatever. And if we share likes and dislikes, if we share likes and dislikes in a vast enough array of things, we start feeling as though something new is happening, something inexorable. We are, quotes, unquote, falling in love. And falling in love may be a romantic thing or it may not be. It could be the way in which you fall in love with a teacher. Um, you fall in love with a child of yours. You fall in love with anything, everything. But essentially, when we're absolutely honest about it, love is all about recognition of self. I love that in you which, to which I can relate. And so then the relatability, and people will sometimes protest at this point in my talk and say, yes, but I love people who are nothing like me. And my answer to that is, you're scanning for unity. You know, you're looking through a heap of things that are not like you in hopes that you'll find things that you wish you had or you aspire to, or things which stand out in contrast and give some contrast to the parts of that experience that gives you a sense of unity. So when we come down to why does the one indivisible whole conscious field go through this business of bifurcating, of forgetting its oneness, it does so in aid of being able to have the experience of love, to recognize oneness, to recognize self. Self is always looking for self. Self is always looking for itself. On the road to this, we have our individuality at various stages of remembrance, various stages of remembrance of its oneness with the universe. And that oneness, that's those stages we would refer to as our evolution. Evolution from complete sense of detachment from that oneness to stages of greater and greater recognition of oneness with the big self. I am one with totality. This is the ultimate expression of the Vedic Rishi, Aham Brahmasmi. I am totality. I am totality. Totality, mind you, is not just the flat, unmanifest, undifferentiated, absolute field of life, the source of everything. Totality means that, that field of unmanifest being, and all the entire field of manifest being as well. The changing world, all of the laws of nature, all of the behaviors that aid the process of evolution. When the Vedic Rishi states, Aham Brahmasmi, I am totality, that Rishi is saying, I am all of this. Not merely the one invisible whole unmanifest, but all of its manifestations too. And the I who's doing the talking is not some little individual, you know, kid from Fresno, California, I am totality. The I who's speaking in I am totality in Aham Brahmasmi is the I of that universal consciousness which is finding itself in an individual. It finds itself in an individual. So when enlightenment occurs, it is universality acquiring clarity 
inside of one of its individual statuses and structures. The ocean is all waves. All waves on an ocean, they're not just connected to the ocean. There's no glue, there's no tapes, there's no bolts, there's no screws. Waves are ocean. Waves are localized curvatures of that field. Just like that, individuality is a localized curvature of unboundedness. And so when that localized curvature, that individuality, let's call this a human person just for some clarity, although it would apply to absolutely any individual status and structure. When an individual status and structure has gained a critical mass of clarity about who I really am, as in a wave discovering I'm not just a little localized curvature moving around on the surface of a flat plane, independent of that plane but connected to it, I am in fact the unboundedness enjoying this curvature, enjoying this movement, then we would call that critical mass of realization enlightenment. On our way from having less recognition of this truth to having more recognition of this truth, we have a phenomenon which we will call evolution. Evolution means individuality gaining ever greater layers of clarity, clarity about the true nature of the self. Here, we're going to spell the self with a capital S. When we are in the process of moving from one level of understanding of self to another, we make use of the laws of nature that cause expansiveness to dominate. Those laws of nature are the laws that are in aid of this evolutionary process. There are laws of nature which predominantly are creative. We call them creation operator laws of nature. There are laws of nature which are predominantly maintaining the maintenance operator function that continues to maintain any status or structure which continues to be relevant to the process of evolution. But the moment relevance is gone, the moment whatever that status or structure is has lost its relevance with reference to evolution, then the destruction operator comes into play. Destruction operator is simply that which decomposes or disintegrates anything that has become irrelevant. Something that's irrelevant means it's now become a block to the process of evolution. May once upon a time have been highly relevant, now no longer relevant. And this is not a judgment about whether a thing ever should have existed or not. This is simply an assessment of whether currently relevance is the predominant feature. So destruction operator. And then we have creation operators, maintenance operators, destruction operators functioning in the field of natural law. The laws of nature that govern the process of evolution. Evolution from what to what? The Vedic worldview says from less cognition, less knowledge, a less clear, a less accurate, a less sustained, a less expansive, a less sophisticated view of the nature of the self to a very sophisticated, very expansive, elegant view of the nature of the self. This is the process of evolution. 
And so along the way, there are ways that we can give a metric to, we can make this thing scalable by saying something along the lines of deserving power, which has to do with recognition of my own true nature. When somebody is egotistical or egocentric, we find that odious. And so then when we look at egocentricity or egotism or egoism, as Freud put it, then we find something odious about that. Why? Because the individual remaining small lays claim to a wide territory of influence and entitlement, whereas the individual hasn't actually grown into a status of knowing its own true nature. It's judging its nature to be, I am a body. I'm a body with a certain history, and that's all I am. And as an individual, as a little body, I've come up with ideas. And these ideas that I've come up with are worthy of manifestation. And so I am the author of my desires. I'm the author of that which I want to happen. And, you know, this approach always gets us into trouble. And the reason it gets us into trouble is because the truth is you are the universe, but you haven't realized that yet. The extent to which you've realized it is the extent to which you can lay claim to genuine enlightenment. Let's give it a percentage. Let's say you've realized to the 5% value what the true nature of the self is, but 95% you're still operating as if all you are is a body, which is perishable. It has a certain lifetime. Even if that's a long lifetime, longevity is fatal. Longevity is going to come to an end. You might live to be 150. Nobody has yet, but if you did, then you would die. And so the idea that somehow you're just going to go on forever and ever and that your individuality is the source and goal of all things, this is egocentricity. It's not the same as the enlightenment in which one has discovered that I am in fact the underlying field that lies deep inside me, which I touch upon when I meditate. I go deep beyond thought. Thought evaporates. All experiences of locale evaporate. In that meditation state, there I am, conscious and awake, completely capable of thinking, and yet somehow my consciousness is choosing not to think. Why would that be? There's only one answer to this. If I'm conscious and capable of thinking and yet not thinking, only bliss can satisfy the criterion of what would keep me there and yet in silence. Because without bliss, the mind has complete freedom to generate any kind of thought form, to generate any kind of experience which is better than where I am now. This is what thoughts are all about. I have a thought because I want to have an experience different to what I'm experiencing right now. I have thoughts to the extent that I have dissatisfaction with what I'm experiencing right now. If what I'm experiencing right now is extremely dissatisfying to me, I'm going to have lots of thoughts and I'm going to be examining constantly lots and lots of options. Lots of thoughts equates with lots of dissatisfaction. Lots of options equates with lots of dissatisfaction.
I want to experience something other than what I'm currently experiencing is an underlying statement of unhappiness with being. In the enlightened state, a completely new experience begins to occur. I am the field. The field, the unbounded consciousness field, is the source of my thoughts. It is the field that generates my desires themselves, and in fact, always has. I get a desire. It's not me, the individual, a big bag of neediness, looking for happiness. I get a desire, and what that is is the field giving me a preview of coming attractions. The field is telling me in which way I am to move. In the enlightened state, one can utterly trust by virtue of assessing the charm. One can utterly trust that it's charming to move this way or it's charming to move that way. And if one follows the charm, one ends up in fact discovering that only evolution occurs. Now let's take the unenlightened state. I get a thought. It's me individually thinking up ways of getting happier. I give no credit whatsoever to the universe. And I am the individual author of this. When I put this thought in a focused and exclusive way into action, then I, the individual, will arrive at an achievement. And if I get a big enough cluster of these achievements, then I'll be a fulfilled person. And in fact, we've watched while millions of people on the face of the earth have attempted this approach and never arrived at fulfillment. A little bit like climbing a mountain range and looking and seeing that there are hundreds and hundreds of pinnacles of mountains. When you thought that you'd summit the first mountain you saw, and on the other side there'd be some glorious land of flatness or ocean or something. But what you saw instead were many other things that could be achieved as if an infinite variety of new things to achieve that you haven't yet achieved. And then one goes on attempting to get fulfillment by creating huge mega clusters of achievements. And none of those mega clusters ever actually brings fulfillment. And there's a basic reason why. Fulfillment lies at the source of thought. It is, in fact, the underlying field of pure being, the source of the thoughts themselves, which is the fulfillment state. During meditation, when our mind touches on that place again and again and again through regular practice, and this is why we emphasize twice daily regular practice of Vedic meditation is essential to stabilize a wakefulness of that underlying state of being. And from there, one can sense, I am fulfilled. Now, let's get back to deserving. I'm on my way from less appreciative of this ultimate fulfillment value to being fully appreciative of it. And along the way, I make some mistakes. What's a mistake? It's not the accurate take. The accurate take is you are the universe thinking and you can trust your desires. The mistake is I'm the author of my desires and I'll get fulfilled individually if I fulfill the desires that I authored. It's theft, really, because the universe is the true author and we're giving complete credit only to our individuality. We're exporting the idea of fulfillment from outside our inner area into something that can be acquired outside the body, outside the individuality. 
when in fact the source of our individuality is the fulfillment state. But that aside, we begin moving in the direction of happiness in whatever way we think we're going to achieve it. And along the way, there are some mistakes. And what's a good mistake example? Well, you know, I um, might have a desire to eat a particular kind of food. And I'm not too sure because I'm the individual and I came up with a desire mistake. Um, and so let me sit and analyze what are the pros and cons. Here are the pros of acquiring and eating this food. Here are the cons. Another mistake, my individual intellect trying to figure it all out and either ratify it or not. Meanwhile, time is passing. And so then finally I buy a book and the book on nutrition says, indeed it will be okay for you to eat that food at this particular time with your particular body type. And so five weeks later, I finally acquiesce and decide to trot down to the Whole Foods store and buy an organic version of the food which five weeks prior I had wondered whether or not I should have because a spontaneous desire came up to have it. And so I go ahead and eat the food and what happens? I end up perhaps not feeling so good from it. Now why is that? And so here's another mistake. The individual intellect looks at that and says, see, you can't trust your desires. There's another mistake. Um, you uh, have to go by the opinions of others who know you better than you know yourself. There's another mistake. What really was your mistake was the assumption, first of all, that you were the individuality coming up with a desire that would bring you fulfillment. That was a mistake. This was in fact the universe trying to think through your body, through your brain, through your, your individuality. And it basically was saying, go get a ripe fig now. And it may well have been that the ripe fig that you were going to go get wasn't in fact what the universe wanted, but that standing near the ripe fig counter at Whole Foods was going to be someone you needed to meet. And you might have immediately forgotten about ripe figs, but because you didn't trust the universe to that it was in fact creating your thoughts for you and your desires, instead of that, you went and did a pros and cons list. And then you got a book and you read the book and you began to trust the opinions of others about ripe figs. And five weeks passed and when you finally went and got the ripe fig, the person whom you were supposed to meet five weeks earlier wasn't standing there anymore. The difference between somebody who is enlightened and someone who is not enlightened is the capacity to trust one's own desire and the capacity to move unhesitatingly when a desire arrives. This is the difference. This is the main operable operating difference. When we don't move in response to the need of the time, when we hesitate, when we give our individuality the capacity to ratify or not ratify the rising of desire, the window of time in which a behavior is relevant has opened and it closes again. And if we decide later on, well, it will be okay. I intellectually decide it's going to be okay. And we move toward that thing which we had desired minutes or hours or weeks before. It may well be that the window of time in which that was evolutionary has now closed and we end up bumping into a wall of no experience. And so then 
On our way to enlightenment, we're going to experience lots of these things. We may decide we're going to push very hard and break down the wall to get at the ripe fig. We may decide we're going to start a fig farm, damn it, and make our own ripe figs so that we don't ever have to wait for anybody else because we had a desire about it long ago and we know it's part of our destiny to have figs because the desire came so powerfully once. But in fact, it may not be relevant for you to be having any figs anymore because you hesitated and you missed the window. So when we behave as an individual, it's a little bit like a bull in a china shop. We go around inadvertently, meaning not intentionally, violating laws of nature. We begin pushing, straining, shoving. We begin being aggressive. And what happens is nature creates a phenomenon which is known as karma. Karma comes from the Sanskrit root for the word action or activity, which is kr, k-r. The r has a little dot under it, and that signifies in the pronunciation characteristics of Sanskrit that the r is to be rolled, kr. So kr and ma. Ma means bondage, to bind, to hold you to a very specific path. Karma is the way in which nature reacts to you giving yourself too much freedom when you don't yet know the true nature of the self. You don't yet know that you are the universe. Processing thoughts, moving that body around that the universe owns, which is yours, in order to aid evolution. You're still making an assumption about individuality owning everything, and you've given yourself inordinate levels of freedom. And that freedom has caused disruption and, dis and unbalance in all of the activities of universal intelligence all around you. And in order to get you back on track, karma happens. Karma means action that is happening in a bound situation. It's a little bit like, excuse the extremity of this image, going to jail. You're in jail, you can eat three times a day at certain times, you can go to the bathroom at certain times, you can go to sleep at certain times, you can turn your lights off and on at certain times, you can have showers at certain times in certain places, but there are grave restrictions on what activities you're actually able to carry out and with what degree you have any latitude of freedom. Karma. Karma means action that is binding. So there's no good karma, bad karma. You know, when I go to the coffee shop and I see the little jar saying, this is the good karma jar, meaning we want a tip, please. This is kind of, you know, the Western liberty that's been taken with words in the Vedic worldview, good karma, bad karma. There's no good and bad. Karma is just karma. It is the binding effect of action based on you having made a mistake about the true nature of your inner self, what you are, when you are, and so on. And so people who are karma-bound find that they have restrictions on behavior. They can't eat this, they can't eat that. They can only eat that, and they can only eat that. They can only do things at certain times of day. It's as if the curbing has been come in on an otherwise, which was once a wide lane, now there's a very strict curbing, and it's a very narrow chute, a very narrow lane 
of only these behaviors and only at these times, a little bit like, you know, consciousness jail. And so one is in karma. Now what happens as we continue to grow with our practice of meditation? We transcend the relative field and we experience again and again that deep, unbounded sense of inner consciousness. What happens is the nature of the self begins to change. I am no longer simply a body with a little brain that was born somewhere and had a bunch of experiences. I am indeed the universe itself. I am totality. As that sense grows and grows and grows, one is granted the opposite of karma. Karma has an opposite, and it is kriya. Kriya, also the root kr, and ya, kriya, Kriya means activity that is perfectly in alignment and attuned with cosmic intelligence, with the evolutionary process. So Kriya means that you get a desire, you recognize it's the universe desiring through you, and suddenly you find you have freedom and latitude. Instead of being in a narrow band of experiences that you're entitled to have, Nature supports you by giving you the support of all the laws of nature. Why? You don't hesitate anymore. No more hesitation. Why? I am not an individual in competition with or working at odds with a universe that's other than me. I am the universe. I am the universe operating through one of its individualities. When I have that realization, nature appears to support. In other words, things will go my way. I may go to the store looking for a fig, lose the desire for the fig, and not care at all, and discover that the real reason I was at the store was to meet person X, on whose life I was going to have a large impact, or in my life a large impact was to be had. And that might be for many, many, many people to benefit from. Why? I didn't hesitate in going after the fig. The fig was just the bait, and the universe may have switched the agenda once you got to the store. So that ability to be wide open to all possibilities, to trust, in fact, what's processing through us. Now, if as an individual, I still think I'm a little tiny individual, and I misinterpret this whole story, and I think, well, Tom said, I can just do anything I find charming, and I can do it instantly. And then we find that we try that, and it brings about suffering, then that's because our sense of who we are, what we actually are, still has yet to grow. As it grows and grows and grows, we'll find that we can trust charm and we can trust the opposite of charm, aversion. So then as we do so, as we grow and grow and we begin to trust more and we begin to find that in our behavior that when we trust, laws of nature support everything, we can make the assumption that enlightenment is growing. And someone for whom enlightenment is growing has another value, something that we need to talk about. They're living a life which we call dharma. Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. Dharma means life lived in perfect attunement with nature's intention. Life lived in perfect attunement with one's own individual purpose, one's individual role in the evolution of all things. Dharma.
Dharma is not an off-on switch, like one day I had no dharma, the next day I had dharma. Uh, the opposite of dharma is adharma. Adharma means not dharma. And so it's not that you live life in adharma and then suddenly one day, bing, you're enlightened and you're living dharma. It's a percentage thing. Your dharmic life and living grows and grows and grows as your own inner sense of what the true nature of the self is also grows. And so if I have 90% realization accurately of the true nature of my inner self and being and the purpose of my individuality, then I'm living 90% dharma. When it's 100%, I'm living 100% dharma. When we live 100% dharma, then we also can be said to have another thing. And here's another Sanskrit word to teach you. And that is punya. Punya, P-U-N-Y-A. Punya means spiritual merit. It's a little bit like your badge of rank in the universe. Why is it that if Lord Buddha came walking into a modern-day shopping center, he would be having a set of experiences utterly different to the average person who walks into the same shopping center? The shopping center wouldn't have any negative impact on Lord Buddha. I'm just using a ridiculous example to prove a point. Uh, it's because he has 100% dharma. That's because he knows that he is the universe in a body, an embodied universe. Um, he knows he's not the author of his desires. And so in that sense, you could say his individuality is beyond desire, but the universe desires through him. And you could say that there couldn't be any suffering He's above and beyond any possibility of suffering. And so somebody else might come home from the mall and say, you know, wow, that place, so crazy. It completely drove me nuts. I can't stand that place. Look at what it's done to me. It's made me, you know, think badly. It has a hypnotic quality. And, you know, we blame our suffering on the world around us. Look what it did to my body, my feet, my, you know, my experiential level, the noise levels I'm used to and all of that. So we externalize the causes of our suffering and make the world around us the cause. Would Lord Buddha do that? Well, in our little uh, analogy, no, he wouldn't. Um, first of all, he's not capable of being made to suffer because the he, as he experiences himself, is the universe itself. And if there's some valuable thing to be done or have done to one, at the shopping mall, then shopping mall it is. Um, and there's no hesitating, there's no complaining, there's no pros and cons list, there's no attribution of good or evil or any of that stuff. It's just my individuality, in fact, is cosmic. So someone, to whatever extent one has that sense of that degree of enlightenment, then one has punya, spiritual merit, it's a, like a cosmic credit rating, in a sense, or a badge of rank. The laws of nature are operating with the individual because the individual realizes that she or he actually is cosmic. The individual no longer is merely an individual. That's a cosmic thing that knows its cosmic status, moving around wherever it moves through shopping malls and whatnot. So it turns out that deserving power in fact, is exactly proportional to the degree to which we have self-realization. 
Self-realization is a term that's bandied about, but what it really means is the degree to which my individuality has identified with its cosmic status. Now, we can't get this individual individuality assessing properly its degree of realization of cosmic status by sitting around thinking about it. This whole talk that I'm giving is a lovely bunch of words and fascinating concepts and perhaps pleasing. But on its own, you can't say, oh, well, I'll just be the universe now and then, you know, take off into the world because that's still the individuality making a decision. What it takes is transcendence. Individuality needs to be transcended regularly. To transcend individuality means to step beyond thought into that no-thought place, that place of bliss. And that needs to happen daily, at least twice daily, in meditation in order for stabilization of that new sense of inner identity that will grow and grow and grow until eventually my inner identity, one's inner sense of self, is I am the universe. Jay Gurudev if you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.